It's good to see you all. There is, as always, plenty of room in the first row. So. Okay, so I'm going to divide my presentation in two parts. The first one will be a little bit more about the person of Pope Benedict, and then the second one about his contribution, his legacy. The title of this talk is The Last Doctor of the Church, Appreciating the Contribution of Benedict XVI. So the title is purposely ambiguous. It is a question, the last doctor of the church. So first, will he be declared one day a doctor? Now, there are four requirements to be officially a doctor of the church. Holiness, right doctrine, eminent erudition, those are the technical words, so to know a lot, and finally, an explicit official declaration of the church. So doctors don't become doctors out of popular acclamation, but there has to be an official decision of, uh, by the church. So if he does become a doctor one day, will he be the last, meaning the last of a long list? Well, not that long, actually, 37 doctors so far. Or, in a different sense, will he be the very last? Now, of course, we cannot say that after Pope Benedict, if God will so, becomes a doctor, there will be no more doctors of the church. But we can say that in some ways he is the last. First, he is the last of the fathers of the Second Vatican Council who actually partake and work directly, actively, in this very important event. He attended as a theological expert when he was only 35 years old, and he actually had a direct impact. So in some way, we can say that his death somewhat uh, marks a, a break, if you will, at least historically, with this epochal event. But also Benedict is the last of a special generation of towering figures that decisively marked the life of the church in the 20th and 21st century. So independent of affinities, preferences, the name Joseph Ratzinger is the last of a rather glorious list of names, and you know, some will recognize some names, some will not, some will understand absolutely everything I will quote or not, but we all, get, uh, we all grow together and learn. But the name Ratzinger will be the last of a, again, very glorious list of names such as Guardini, von Balthasar, Ranner, Congar, Danielou. Now, to be sure, there are very smart theologians working today in the church, absolutely, writing very good books, teaching well. But it is not easy to find a name that could join that list, not only of accomplished authors, but of wise and visionary, integral and prophetic, faithful and synthetic souls. So Joseph Ratzinger really is the last of a generation. Now, he published more than 60 books. I don't remember the name exactly, and actually we're counting because there are a few things that he wrote during his retirement that now will be published. 
He also published a few hundred academic articles, and I don't mean a blog where no one reads what you're reading, I mean peer-reviewed, very, very uh, serious academically uh, writings. He taught in one seminary and four German universities, and then he participated in the Second Vatican Council and had an actual direct impact, and later as a bishop, then as the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, and finally as pope, he has no question been a very decisive figure in the life of the church. Mario Vargas Llosa, I don't know if you've heard that name, Nobel Prize of Literature, a very smart novelist, agnostic, Peruvian. He was just introduced into the French Academy this week, which is as glorious an honor as a writer can have. They're called the, immor the immortals, the, the immortel. Anyway, Mario Vargas Llosa, who's an agnostic person, said when Benedict resigned from the papacy that those who disagree with him, like this writer himself, cannot simply ignore what he said, because, he wrote, he never had superficial reasons. Quote, he belonged to what is an especially conspicuous species on the way to extinction, the intellectual. He thought with depth and originality based on his enormous theological, philosophical, historical, and literary knowledge gained in the many classical and modern languages that he had mastered. Of course, there have been very brilliant popes. We can think about Leo the Great, Gregory the Great, many more, Benedict XIV, John Paul II. But we can say that no other pope in the history of the church has had this stature as a first-class theologian and academic. After a debate he had with Jürgen Habermas, one of the most famous philosophers uh, alive, well, he's 93, but they had a great debate and it was published and everything. Habermas, and again, an accomplished agnostic philosopher, told a friend who told a friend who told me, so the chain is actually short in this case, <laughs> this simple confession. He's smarter than me. Now, Ratzinger was not just a cold academic. His friend, Colonel Meissner, described him in this way. He is smart as 12 professors and devout as a first communion child. <laughs> this is the most successful phrase so far. Uh, now, he really was a kind soul. Even in very difficult circumstances, his collaborators attest again and again that he was always a serene person and was never in a bad mood. Even when so many in the church and outside the church criticized him and attacked him in so many ways. Even when he was often portrayed as this German rigid enforcer of some kind of law, even when he was betrayed by some of his, of his closest collaborators, he suffered in silence and with patience. 
And he had to do things that he did not want to do. His one dream was to be a theologian. That's what he wanted. He did not want to be a bishop. He did not want to be in charge of the office for the doctrine of the faith. We know that he tried to retire three times and John Paul II didn't let him. And he certainly did not want to become Pope when he was 78, after three failed attempts for (laughs) retiring. He described later, actually, the moment of his imminent election as a guillotine that was falling upon him. And just a week ago or so, Peter Sievald, who's his main biographer and was close to him, has revealed that for many decades he suffered from chronic headaches and chronic insomnia. Pope Francis described Benedict, his predecessor, with these words, not only as a preeminent theologian and master of the faith, but as a man who really believes, really prays. He is a man who embodies holiness, a man of peace, a man of God. The most important theologian of our times, at least right now, was a man who prayed. And that's not a small thing. This is why he never lost his kindness and his humility. When one reads his spiritual testament, I don't know if you've read that, but a short document that he wrote a few years ago to be read after his death, one is struck by precisely this unusual combination of humility and knowledge. With simplicity, he starts by thanking God, thanking his father, thanking his mother, his brother, sister, his friends, his uh, friends from his beloved uh, Bavarian Alps. And then the scholar speaks and says, for 60 years now I have accompanied the path of theology. I have seen and see how out of the tangle of hypotheses, the reasonableness of faith has emerged and is emerging now. One of the things that I will never really forget from when I visited him almost five years ago, was precisely this striking combination. One of the wisest authors ever was so simply and sincerely interested, at least during that time, in me and and what I was saying and what I was doing and how many students I had and things like that. He really was a kind and humble man. His departure has brought sadness. I was actually somewhat surprised by the many messages I got from many of you and a number number of friends as as if my own father had died. And indeed, my father had died. And like many, I felt not only some real sadness, but also some loneliness and, and confusion, insecurity about the future. Until one day, looking at the photos that were taken that time, that visit, almost five years ago, I saw one, which if you've been to my office, I have there, very big, in which he's uh, actually holding my hand. I didn't plan to hold his hand. We were taking a photo, and at some point I felt my hand like, (laughs) he's holding my hand. (laughs) So that is actually beautifully captured in in this photo. But that made me think uh, a lot, and made me realize that actually he's not far, that from heaven he will take care of us, me, and that he will become now a powerful intercessor who will be able to do more for his beloved and suffering church. 
Many years ago, he wrote about the ascension of the Lord as the beginning of a new closeness, the beginning of a new nearness. So we hope that this new nearness of Benedict XVI will be the occasion for many more to come to understand his decisive contribution and how much his work, but also his silent suffering, have blessed us, perhaps in more ways than we are aware of. So with this, I want to share a few thoughts about that lasting contribution. No one would ever claim that everything he did was perfect, as a scholar, as a bishop, as a pope. But his contribution to our Christian life is very significant. He wrote about virtually all relevant topics pertaining to faith. And I've been more and more acquainted with this because of a very interesting project I've been involved with in, in the past uh, almost two years. You know, during lockdown, a lot of people started to discover great things to do. You know, some people were learning how to bake or cook or build beehives or what have you. But because I'm absolutely impractical, uh, some of the things that I started to think was writing projects. So one was to produce what's called a Cambridge Companion, in this case to Joseph Ratzinger. A Cambridge Companion is a select um, a multi-author volume on an author or a topic. So there can be, I mean, it's Cambridge because of Cambridge University Press, but you know, it could be about the Cambridge Companion to the Civil War or, or what have you. So for fun, if you want to see later, I, I brought this Cambridge Companion to Thomas Aquinas, so you get an idea. So with a friend, I'm editing this volume, and we've been able to gather a group of very bright international scholars who are taking, each one of them, one topic of the contribution of Joseph Ratzinger. And as I'm reading these chapters and editing, I'm sincerely and deeply moved and amazed at the breadth and depth of his contribution. Now, typically, authors, writers, fall in one of two categories. Those who are more analytical and go in great detail in their study of a few topics. And then, those who are more synthetic and can visualize the big picture offering an overarching explanation of big topics. Very few can fit well in both categories, and Ratzinger is one of them. Now, an important clarification is in place right now, in case you're saying, okay, this is really interesting and at the same time really, really boring. Uh, Benedict's influence goes beyond, well beyond, the ideas that he wrote, okay? So his impact is relevant not only for those who like to read theology books, not only for those who will read his writings. I suggest that we can say that we cannot be, we cannot be Catholics in the 21st century without Benedict. What do I mean? Some people mark history and change our lives whether we think of them or not. So, for instance, we cannot, as people born in this century in the West, we cannot reason without Aristotle. 
the commonly accepted realities of truth, logic, ethics, have become part of our patrimony. And while most of us don't think about Aristotle as we think, we think as we do because of him. Similarly, we cannot really speak English without Shakespeare. We wouldn't have so many common words at our disposal, such as bedroom, torture, excitement, lonely, etc., etc., etc. So again, we only, do not only quote Shakespeare, that too, but we speak as we do because of him. In a similar way, we cannot be 21st centuries, 21st century Catholics without Benedict. And his contribution goes beyond the very interesting and fascinating ideas about God and the world that he wrote. His legacy then resides mostly in the categories with which to think about God today. So as Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, Benedict Ratzinger contributes, so to speak, to the architecture of the faith of theology in our time. So using the image of architecture, not only what you see in the house when you walk in, not only the colors or the paintings or the furniture, but the foundations that allow a house to exist, the columns. He has given us the stuff, the grammar with which we can think about God in today's world. And I would like now to mention three main contributions to this architecture, to three pillars. The first one is faith and reason. From his early days, Ratzinger worked really hard to promote a meaningful harmony between faith and reason. And he found the key in his use of logos, Um, the word logos means, well, precisely, word and meaning. Logos is, he says, the rational origin of all reality, the creative reason from which the world came forth and which is reflected in the world. But there is more than reason. He says that Christian faith in God tells us also that God Eternal reason is love. So these are primal realities, and that's why he's able to say something that really, when we think about, sounds surprising. Truth and love are identical. Truth and love are identical. Why? Because they are one person, Jesus Christ, the Logos. Because of this, the Christian faith is based on the fact that, quote, Love and reason come together as the two pillars of reality. True reason is love, and love is true reason. They are in their unity, the true basis, and the goal of all reality. Now, he reflected about these things not at a distance from some kind of ivory tower, but as a believer, someone who cared, who struggled as well, who knew what he was saying and who was able to say it beautifully. Let me quote a longer passage about this. Christian faith lives on the discovery 
that not only is there such a thing as objective meaning, but that this meaning knows me and loves me, that I can entrust myself to it like that child who knows that everything he may be wondering about is safe in the you of his mother. Thus, in the last analysis, believing, trusting, and loving are one. And all the thesis around which belief revolves are only concrete expressions of the all-embracing about turn, of the assertion, I believe in you, of the discovery of God in the countenance of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He insisted again and again that faith and reason need each other. And note, he's not only saying, well, faith is everything, we know everything, so put some reason to it. But they need each other. So he said, without faith, philosophy cannot be whole. But faith without reason cannot be human. And without fear, he recognized that, quote, there exist pathologies in religion that are extremely dangerous and that make it necessary to see the divine light of reason as a controlling organ. Religion must continually allow itself to be purified and structured by reason. So a purely sentimental faith based mainly or only in, on individual experience and limited to pieties can become extremely dangerous. Faith then has to be structured by reason because faith is reasonable. It goes beyond reason, but it is reasonable. It is about truth and love. But of course, the other side is true. He says, there are also pathologies of reason. There is a pride of reason that is no less dangerous. And this is why reason too must be warned to keep within its proper limits. And it must learn a willingness to listen to the great religious traditions of mankind. And about this, interestingly, he points out to the fact that at the beginning, Christianity, in the world of many religions and philosophies, actually aligned with philosophy. In Christianity, he wrote, enlightenment has become part of religion and is no longer its opponent. So it's not about, oh, do you believe in God or are you a reasonable person? He says, the encounter between the biblical message and the Greek thought did not happen by chance. So the Bible encountered Greek philosophy. And now we have words to express the mysteries of our faith. We have the word person or nature and substance. That's why he says, not to act in accordance with reason is contrary to God's nature. The second point, the second contribution to to uh, living our faith today is how to receive God's word. One of the Second Vatican Council's most important, influential, and beautiful documents is Dei Verbum, which is on, on revelation, on divine revelation. And the young Professor Ratzinger had a direct influence in this document. 
our common way of understanding Revelation actually in many ways comes from him. He was very critical to the proposed scheme that those preparing the Second Vatican Council uh, had prepared for this document to be uh, worked by the Council Fathers. This scheme proposed the idea of the two sources of revelation. One is scripture, the other one tradition. And Father Ratzinger said that that was a mechanical and rigid separation of revelation in two vessels, one that doomed faith to sterility by separating theology from all modern science. Rather, he said, there is one source of revelation, God himself, who communicates his word through two streams, the written word, the Bible, and the oral word, tradition. In this way, with this approach, revelation is not only about doctrines and laws, but about a person who communicates his love and truth. And this view allows us to see the church as a dwelling place of the world, without any contradiction between Bible and tradition, between scripture and the church and authority and magisterium. In fact, he says, the word of God precedes and exceeds sacred scripture. And Christianity is not a religion of the book, but of a person. The central formula of our Christian faith, he says, is not, I believe in something, but I believe in you. Benedict has taught us then to receive the word of God, the written word in scripture and the oral word in tradition. And he has instructed us to read the word in the church, not outside the church, not as an individual preference open certainly to the contributions of human sciences and new methods, but always placing them in the right area. Never losing sight that the Bible, that scripture, is actually God's word, inspired, and therefore, as the council says, must be read and interpreted in the same spirit in which it was written. Now, that trilogy, Jesus of Nazareth, which I brought here, I don't know if you're familiar with the three volumes of uh, Life of Jesus that he published and wrote from 2007 to 2012. This is a rich fruit of a lifelong engagement, both spiritual and academic, with a person of Jesus Christ. No other pope had ever written something of this magnitude as a pope, because he wrote it as a pope, although signing Joseph Ratzinger, but while he was uh, Pope. And um, it stands as a lasting school, not only to know Jesus, this is what I'm trying to highlight, not only as a school to know Jesus, but to learn the way to know Jesus, the method, the way to get to know him. So what will be remembered goes well beyond the deep insights into the different passages of the life of Christ. I believe that the most decisive legacy of Jesus of Nazareth, as a culmination of more than 50 years of writing, is this. The proof of the real possibility of reading Scripture in a reasonable 
and spiritual way, with scientific honesty and fidelity to tradition. Benedict was concerned about a very common separation in biblical scholarship between the Jesus of history, the historical Jesus on one side, and then the Christ of faith. That separation brought a great problem, which he described as a dramatic situation for faith, because its point of reference is placed in doubt. Intimate friendship with Jesus, on which everything depends, is in danger of clutching at thin air. So if you cannot really know if this person did those things, said those things, who are you following? This is why open and sincerely open to all the resources of modern science, human sciences, historical sciences, while also reading the Gospels as revealed using what he called a canonical exegesis, he presented, quote, the figure, sorry, the Jesus of the Gospels as a real historical Jesus, a historically plausible and convincing figure. If we can know Jesus, what he said and what he actually did, then we can really believe in him and follow him. And then the last point of these three pillars, contributions to our living our faith today, is a sacred liturgy. While not being an officially trained liturgist, just as he was not an officially trained biblical scholar, something that, by the way, his critics always said, uh, his liturgical vision has marked the way in which we worship. Just as the Second Vatican Council's first document was a document on the sacred liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, so when a group of scholars um, was working on the collected works of Joseph Ratzinger, he requested that the first volume in being published uh, was precisely the one on liturgy, which I brought here. So this is his collected works on liturgy. Sadly, in English, this is the only volume of 16 of these fad books, 16. Actually 13, but one of those has three volumes, the one on preaching, so more than 2,000 pages of homilies. So sadly, we only have this one in English. In many other languages, it's completely published. But anyway, the point is that he really wanted the one on liturgy to be the first, although technically this is volume 11 in the order of the editors, totally worth having it, and not particularly expensive. Why? Why did he request this one thing from the editors? Well, he said this, beginning with the liturgy tells us, God first. When the focus on God is not decisive, everything else loses its orientation. Decisive. Obviously, if you're writing about preaching or so many other things, there is a certain focus on God, but he wants that to be absolutely clear and explicit. Because of this, he can boldly state, the church stands or falls with the liturgy. The true celebration of the sacred liturgy is at the center of any renewal of the church. And even more boldly, 
The deepest cause of a crisis that has upset the church lies in the obscuring of the priority of God in the liturgy. So you can celebrate liturgy and God is not evidently the center. We can be the center. The community can be the center. Our culture can be the center. The obscuring of the priority of God in the liturgy. Based on this principle that nothing is more important than the worship of God and the way in which we worship God, I will now mention just three aspects of Benedict's liturgical vision that have informed our way of worship. First, I really believe he's the best interlocutor to make sense of what happened in the 20th and 21st centuries liturgical reform, right before, during, and after the Second Vatican Council until our times. It's not always easy to understand. There are very strong opinions. Many people say things they, they shouldn't say. Uh, I, uh, Ratzinger provides a very balanced, intelligent, and faithful reading of the events. And he was there before, during, and after. After the liturgical movement that came before the Second Vatican Council, the council itself, says Benedict, brought about a renewal a reform that was necessary and balanced. But he writes, quote, in the implementation of the council, it was easy for the balance to be disrupted one-sidedly in a specific direction. While the reforms implemented by the council are clearly obligatory, he says, they are not simply identical with the council and what was implemented five years, 10 years later, mandatory, but not exactly the same as the council. Because of this, he says, thinking, being critical, thinking about a revision, a renewal of today's liturgy does not mean being an opponent of the council. The liturgical reform has to be understood according to what he called the hermeneutic, so the way of understanding, uh, the hermeneutic of reform in continuity. So we need both reform, that brings a change, but that has to be in continuity. He used a great example of tradition being like a river. It's always the same water, but it's always moving. It cannot remain quiet like a lake where nothing can ever change whether nothing can change in 1962 or nothing can change now that seemingly everything changed as if, okay, that's it. The Holy Spirit is not working. Tradition is done. Uh, there has to be change, but it has to be the same water. It's not that the Second Vatican Council marked a completely new beginning in which what was holy before is just not holy anymore and ought to be forbidden. That's the first point, understanding the reform of the council in a good, fruitful way. Second, but very closely related, he helps us understand what active participation actually means. Active participation is the main goal of the reform of the Second Vatican Council. We read, in the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, Full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. This is what the church 
wanted and wants active participation. Now, in his famous book, The Spirit of the Liturgy, which I also brought, that's the last one I brought, don't get too excited. No, it's not this one. Um, oh, actually, I didn't bring it because guess what? It's within this volume on collected works and the liturgy. So I didn't want to carry more weight. But uh, that book really was a game changer. It was published in the year 2000. It was the actual, the, the last actual book as a, uh, a monographic work, not a collection of writings, but a book that he wrote from beginning to the end in the year 2000. In that book, he wrote, uh, lamented the fact that, quote, unfortunately, active participation was very quickly misunderstood to mean something external, entailing a need for general activity, as if as many people as possible, as often as possible, should be visibly engaged in action. So we just need to do things, and everyone has to be able to do something, etc. But rather, he says, the core of true participation is interior. It's not exterior. It's not about multiplying roles. Because in the end, not everyone can do everything. So there will be still a few people who are not actively participating. So that ideal makes no sense. True participation is first and foremost interior. It is joining our hearts in the sacrifice of Christ, entering into his mystery. True participation is our prayer join to the prayer of Christ. That's what happens in the liturgy. We can pray in many other ways, in many other places, in many other situations, but in the liturgy, we are joining the prayer of Jesus Christ, most especially in the Eucharistic prayer. And third, about liturgical vision, beauty. For many today in the church, beauty seems secondary when not just irrelevant, or at times even disruptive. Many can ask, who can tell me that something I don't like or I'm not used to is beautiful and therefore important and therefore maybe better objectively than other options? Difficult question. But he said, the liturgy is inherently linked to beauty. It is veritatis splendor. It is the splendor of the truth. Beauty and truth are connected. That's why he wrote, the care for beauty in the liturgy is no mere aestheticism, but a concrete way in which the truth of God's love in Christ encounters us, attracts us, and delights us. Now, he offered many reflections on different axes of liturgical beauty, architecture, vestments, art, ritual, etc. But let's just say a quick word about liturgical music. He reminds us that it is essential to distinguish between religious and liturgical music. So not every song that says something about Jesus is therefore... Uh, proper to the liturgy. So there's religious music in general, which is great, valid, necessary, and then there is liturgical music. He said that liturgical music finds its standard in Gregorian chant and classical polyphony standard. Doesn't mean that everything has to be 
chant, or polyphony. But, he wrote, not every kind of music can have a place in Christian worship. It has its standards, and that standard is the logos, the word. This is why words have priority over melody. The melody comes from the words. And this leads us to our last point. In the years following the council, some very influential authors, Ranner among them, made a very drastic distinction between what they call esoteric and utility music. These are their words. So esoteric doesn't mean horoscopes or anything, but limited to a small group of people. Esoteric music is that beautiful, they recognize, very beautiful treasure of the church's uh, musical tradition that is perhaps too nice and therefore should not be really used in actual masses, in actual liturgical celebrations, where we should only do what they call utility music. That is music that is so simple and easy that absolutely everyone can sing absolutely everything. These ideas really have penetrated and dominated the life of most parishes worldwide. And Benedict lamented this, saying, one thing has become clear in recent years. The retreat into utility has not made the liturgy more open. It has only impoverished it. Now, let me quote a longer passage about this. A church which only makes use of utility music has fallen for what is, in fact, useless. She too becomes ineffectual, for her mission is a far higher one. The church must not settle down with what is merely comfortable and serviceable. Pay attention to this one phrase, one of his top ten, in my humble opinion. Next to the saints... The art which the church has produced is the only real apologia, defense, of her, for her history. I'm going to read that again. Next to the saints, the art which the church has produced is the only real apologia, defense, for her history. The church is to transform, improve, humanize the world. But how can she do that if at the same time she turns her back on beauty, which is so closely allied to love. The church must maintain high standards. She must be a place where beauty can be at home. And just a conclusion. I think these reflections, ideas on liturgy can help us bring some conclusions. Question, do some of these ideas look familiar to you? And I mean look not just, have you read them, but have you seen that in practice? Well, may, let me make a quick summary. Okay. So first, paying attention, real attention, close attention to the liturgy, first and foremost. Celebrating the Mass in an understandable way, but open to the treasures of tradition. According to the reform of the Second Vatican Council that did not eliminate everything that existed before, with a cross at the center of the altar, surrounded by candles, oriented, you know, orientation toward Jesus, the spiritual east, making it possible to have silence and adore, making it possible, when possible, 
to kneel and receive communion in the tongue, singing chant and listening to polyphony with beautiful vestments and in a beautiful space. All the things that we have tried slowly, patiently to implement here and here at our parish come from the teachings and example of Pope Benedict, all of them. And whether we have read them or not, just as with the other examples, you know, our understanding of faith and reason, our understanding of revelation, of how to receive God's word, we believe, worship, and live as Catholics today because of Benedict. A few months ago, a parishioner told me that she was getting very, very interested in liturgy. And that the more she was reading about liturgy and going online and having conversations with friends, etc., the more she was losing peace. Because there are a lot of fights and opinions and bitter judgments about liturgy. So it was then that she read The Spirit of the Liturgy and found in that book a wonderful and balanced ideal to long for. And then sometime later, she told me, after rejecting several invitations to come to Mass at Holy Name because of the hype, she said she didn't want that <laughs> fashionable thing, uh, she attended one Easter vigil. I don't know which one. And during the Easter vigil, he, she had this thought. Wait, that's exactly what Ratzinger wrote about in the spirit of the liturgy. I have never received a better compliment. <laughs> and it wasn't that's a good news about me or anyone here. It was about the church and one of her best sons. We can only hope that the legacy of this, hopefully, modern doctor of the church will be known more and more. Thank you very much.